welcome back to my relaxing literature podcast. If you are enjoying this podcast, please remember to subscribe, rate, and review on your podcast platform of choice. Tonight, we're continuing our reading of The Adventures of Tom Sawyer by Mark Twain. Chapter 5 About half past ten, the cracked bell of the small church began to ring, and presently the people began to gather for the morning sermon. The Sunday school children distributed themselves about the house and occupied pews with their parents so as to be under supervision. Aunt Polly came, and Tom and Sid and Mary sat with her, Tom being placed next to the aisle in order that he might be as far away from the open window and the seductive outside summer scenes as possible. The crowd filed up the aisles, the aged and needy postmaster who had seen better days, the mayor and his wife, for they had a mayor there, among other unnecessaries, the justice of the peace, the widow, Douglas, fair, smart, and forty, a generous, good-hearted soul, and well-to-do, her hill mansion, her hill mansion was the only palace in town, and the most hospitable, and much the most lavish, in the matter of festivities that St. Petersburg could boast. The bent and venerable Major and Mrs. Ward, Lawyer Riverson, the new notable from a distance, next the bell of the village, followed by a troop of lawn-clad and ribbon-decked young heartbreakers, then all the young clerks in town in a body, for they had stood in the vestibule sucking their cane heads, a circling wall of oiled and simpering admirers, till the last girl had run their gauntlet, and last of all came the model boy, Willie Mufferson, taking as heedful care of his mother as if she were cut glass. He always brought his mother to church, and was the pride of all the matrons. The boys all hated him, he was so good, and besides, he had been thrown up to them so much. His white handkerchief was hanging out of his pocket behind, as usual on Sundays, accidentally. Tom had no handkerchief, and he looked upon boys who had as snobs. The congregation being fully assembled now, the bell rang once more to warn laggards and stragglers, and then a solemn hush fell upon the church, which was only broken by the tittering and whispering of the choir in the gallery. The choir always tittered and whispered all through the service. There was once a church choir that was not ill-bred, but I have forgotten where it was now. It was a great many years ago, and I can scarcely remember anything about it, but I think it was in some foreign country. The minister gave out a hymn and read it through with a relish in a peculiar style which was much admired in that part of the country. His voice began on a medium key and climbed steadily up, till it reached a certain point where it bore with strong emphasis upon the topmost word, and then plunged down as if from a springboard. Shall I be carried toe in the skies, on flowery beds of ease, whilst others fight to win the prize and sail through bloody seas? He was regarded as a wonderful reader. At church sociables, he was always called upon to read poetry, and when he was through, the ladies would lift up their hands and let them fall helplessly in their laps, and wall their eyes and shake their heads, as much to say, words cannot express it, it is too beautiful, too beautiful for this mortal earth. 
After the hymn had been sung, the Reverend Mr. Sprague turned himself into a bulletin board and read off the notices of meetings and societies and things till it seemed that the list would stretch out to the crack of doom, a queer custom which is still kept up in America, even in cities, away here in this age of abundant newspapers. Often the less there is to justify a traditional custom, the harder it is to get rid of it. And now the minister prayed. A good, generous prayer it was, and went into details. It pleaded for the church, and the little children of the church, for the other churches of the village, for the village itself, for the county, for the state, for the state officers, for the United States, for the churches of the United States, for Congress, for the President, for the officers of the government, for poor sailors tossed by stormy seas, for the oppressed millions groaning under the heel of European monarchies and oriental despotisms, for such as have the light and the good tidings, and yet have not eyes to see nor ears to hear withal, for the heathen in the far islands of the sea, and closed with a supplication that the words he was about to speak might find grace and favor." and be as seed sown in fertile ground, yielding in time a grateful harvest of good. Amen. There was a rustling of dresses, and the standing congregation sat down. The boy whose history this book relates did not enjoy the prayer. He only endured it, if he even did that much. He was restive all through it. He kept a tally of the details of the prayer unconsciously, for he was not listening, but he knew the ground of old and the clergyman's regular route over it, and when a little trifle of new matter was interlarded, his ear detected it and his whole nature resented it. He considered additions unfair and scoundrelly. In the midst of the prayer, a fly had lit on the back of the pew in front of him and tortured his spirit by calmly rubbing its hands together, embracing its head with its arms, and polishing it so vigorously that it seemed almost part company with the body. And the slender thread of a neck was exposed to view, scraping its wings with its hind legs and smothering them to its body as if it had been coat-tails, going through its whole toilet as tranquilly as if it knew it was perfectly safe." as indeed it was, for as sorely as Tom's hands itched to grab it, they did not dare. He believed his soul would be instantly destroyed if he did such a thing while the prayer was going on. But with the closing sentence, his hand began to curve and steal forward, and the instant the amen was out, the fly was a prisoner of war. His aunt detected the act and made him let it go. The minister gave out his text and droned along monotonously, through an argument that was so prosy that many a head by and by began to nod, and yet it was an argument that dealt in limitless fire and brimstone and thinned the predestined elect down to a company so small as to be hardly worth the saving. Tom counted the pages of the sermon. After church he always knew how many pages there had been, but he seldom knew anything else about the discourse. However, this time he was really interested for a little while. The minister made a grand and moving picture of the assembling together of the world's host at the millennium when the lion and the lamb should lie down together and a little child should lead them. But the pathos, the lesson, the moral of the great spectacle were lost upon the boy. He only thought of the conspicuousness of the principal character before the onlooking nations. His face lit with the thought, 
and he said to himself that he wished he could be that child, if it was a tame lion. Now he lapsed into suffering again as the dry argument was resumed. Presently he bethought him a treasure he had and got it out. It was a large black beetle with formidable jaws, a pinch bug, he called it. It was in a percussion cap box. The first thing the beetle did was to take him by the finger. A natural Philip followed. The beetle went floundering into the aisle and lit on its back, and the hurt finger went into the boy's mouth. The beetle lay there, working its helpless legs, unable to turn over. Tom eyed it and longed for it, but it was safe out of his reach. Other people, uninterested in the sermon, found relief in the beetle, and they eyed it too. Presently, a vagrant poodle dog came idling along, sad at heart, lazy with the summer softness and the quiet, weary of captivity, sighing for change. He spied the beetle, the drooping tail, lifted and wagged. He surveyed the prize, walked around it, smelt it from a safe distance, walked around it again, grew bolder, and took a closer smell, then lifted his lip and made a gingerly snatch at it, just missing it, made another and another, began to enjoy the diversion, subsided to his stomach with the beetle between his paws, and continued his experiments grew weary at last, and then indifferent and absent-minded. His head nodded, and little by little his chin descended and touched the enemy, who seized it. There was a sharp yelp, a flirt of the poodle's head, and the beetle fell a couple of yards away and lit on its back once more. The neighboring spectators shook with a gentle inward joy. Several faces went behind fans and handkerchiefs, and Tom was entirely happy. The dog looked foolish and probably felt it too, but there was resentment in his heart too and a craving for revenge. So he went to the beetle and began a wary attack on it again, jumping at it from every point of a circle, lighting with his forepaws within an inch of the creature, making even closer snatches at it with his teeth, and jerking his head till his ears flapped again. But he grew tired once more, after a while, tried to amuse himself with a fly, but found no relief, followed an ant around with his nose close to the floor, and quickly wearied of that, yawned, sighed, forgot the beetle entirely, and sat down on it. Then there was a wild yelp of agony, and the poodle went sailing up the aisle. The yelps continued, and so did the dog. He crossed the house in front of the altar, he flew down the other aisle, he crossed before the doors, he clambered up the home stretch, his anguish grew with his progress, till presently he was but a woolly comet moving in its orbit with the gleam and the speed of light. At the last, the frantic sufferer sheared from its course and ran into its master's lap. He flung it out of the window, and the voice of distress quickly thinned away and died in the distance. By the time the whole church was red-faced and suffocating with suppressed laughter, and the sermon had come to a dead standstill, the discourse was resumed presently, but it went lame and halting, all possibility of impressiveness being at an end, for even the gravest sentiments were constantly being received with a smothered burst of unholy mirth, under the cover of some remote pew-back, as if the poor parson had said a rarely facetious thing. It was a genuine relief to the whole congregation when the ordeal was over and the benediction pronounced. Tom Sawyer went home quite cheerful, thinking to himself 
that there was some satisfaction about divine service when there was a bit of variety in it. He had but one marring thought. He was willing that the dog should play with his pinch bug, but he did not think it was upright in him to carry it off. Chapter 6 Monday morning found Tom Sawyer miserable. Monday morning always found him so, because it began another week's slow suffering in school. He generally began that day with wishing he had no intervening holiday. It made the going into captivity and fetters again so much more odious. Tom lay thinking. Presently it occurred to him that he wished he was sick, then he could stay home from school. Here was a vague possibility. He canvassed the system. No ailment was found, and he investigated again. This time, he thought, he could detect colicky symptoms, and he began to encourage them with considerable hope. But soon they grew feeble, and presently died wholly away. He reflected further. Suddenly he discovered something. One of his upper front teeth was loose. This was lucky. He was about to begin a groan as a starter, as he called it, when it occurred to him that if he came into the court with that argument, his aunt would pull it out, and that would hurt. So he thought he would hold the tooth in reserve for the present and seek further. Nothing offered for some little time, and then he remembered hearing the doctor tell about a certain thing that laid up a patient for two or three weeks and threatened to make him lose a finger. So the boy eagerly drew his sore toe from under the sheet and held it up for inspection, but now he did not know the necessary symptoms. However, it seemed well worth while to chance it, so he fell to groaning with considerable spirit. But Sid slept on unconscious. Tom groaned louder and fancied that he began to feel the pain in the toe. No result from Sid. Tom was panting with his exertions by this time. He took a rest and then swelled himself up and fetched a succession of admirable groans. Sid snored on. Tom was aggravated. He said, Sid, Sid, and shook him. This course worked well, and Tom began to groan again. Sid yawned, stretched, then brought himself up on his elbow with a snort and began to stare at Tom. Tom went on groaning. Sid said, Tom, say Tom. No response. Here, Tom. Tom, what is the matter, Tom? And he shook him and looked in his face anxiously. Tom moaned out, Oh, don't, Sid, don't joggle me. Why, what's the matter, Tom? I must call Auntie. No, never mind. It'll be over by and by, maybe. Don't call anybody. But I must. Don't groan so, Tom. It's awful. How long you been this way? Hours. Ouch. Don't stir so, Sid. You'll kill me. Tom, why didn't you wake me sooner? Oh, Tom, don't. It makes my flesh crawl to hear you. Tom, what is the matter? I forgive you everything, Sid. Groan. Everything you've ever done to me. When I'm gone... Oh, Tom, you ain't dying, are you? Don't, Tom. Oh, don't. Maybe... I forgive everybody, Sid. Groan. Tell him so, Sid. And, Sid, you give my window sash and my cat with one eye to that new girl that's come to town and tell her... 
but Sid had snatched his clothes and gone. Tom was suffering in reality now so handsomely that his imagination was working, and so his groans had gathered quite a genuine tone. Sid flew downstairs and said, Oh, Aunt Polly, come, Tom's dying. Dying? Yes'm, don't wait, come quick. Rubbish, I don't believe it. But she fled upstairs, nevertheless, with Sid and Mary at her heels, and her face grew white, too, and her lip trembled. When she reached the bedside, she gasped out, You, Tom, Tom, what's the matter with you? Oh, Auntie, I'm... What's the matter with you? What is the matter with you, child? Oh, Auntie, my toes sore mortified. The old lady sank down into a chair and laughed a little, then cried a little, then did both together. This restored her, and she said, Tom, what a turn you did give me. Now you shut up that nonsense and climb out of this. The groans ceased and the pain vanished from the toe. The boy felt a little foolish and said, Aunt Polly, it seemed mortified, and it hurt so I never minded my tooth at all. Your tooth, indeed. What's the matter with your tooth? One of them's loose, and it aches perfectly awful. There, there, now, don't begin that groaning again. Open your mouth. Well, your tooth is loose, but you're not going to die about that. Mary, get me a silk thread and a chunk of fire out of the kitchen. Tom said, Oh, please, Auntie, don't pull it out. It don't hurt any more. I wish I may never stir if it does. Please don't, Auntie. I don't want to stay home from school. Oh, you don't, don't you? So all this row is because you thought you'd get to stay home from school and go a-fishing? Tom, Tom, I love you so, and you seem to try every way you can to break my old heart with your outrageousness. By this time, the dental instruments were ready. The old lady made one end of the silk thread fast to Tom's tooth with a loop and tied the other to the bedpost. Then she seized the chunk of fire and suddenly thrust it almost into the boy's face. The tooth hung dangling by the bedpost now. But all trials being their compensations, as Tom went to school after breakfast, he was the envy of every boy he met because the gap in his upper row of teeth enabled him to expectorate in a new and admirable way. He gathered quite a following of lads interested in the exhibition, and one that had cut his finger and had been a center of fascination and homage up to this time, and now found himself without an adherent and shorn of his glory. His heart was heavy, and he said with a disdain which he did not feel that it wasn't anything to spit like Tom Sawyer, but another boy said, Sour grapes, and he wandered away a dismantled hero. Shortly, Tom came upon the juvenile pariah of the village, Huckleberry Finn, son of the town drunkard. Huckleberry was cordially hated and dreaded by all the mothers of the town, because he was idle and lawless and vulgar and bad, and because all their children admired him so, and delighted in his forbidden society, and wished they dared to be like him. Tom was like the rest of the respectable boys, in that he envied Huckleberry his gaudy, outcast condition, and was under strict orders not to play with him. So he played with him every time he got a chance. Huckleberry was always dressed in the cast-off clothes of full-grown men, and they were in perennial bloom and fluttering with rags. His hat was a vast ruin, with a wide crescent lopped out of its brim. His coat, when he wore one, hung nearly to his heels, and he had the rearward buttons far down the back. 
but one suspender supported his trousers, the seat of the trousers bagged low and contained nothing. The fringed legs dragged in the dirt when not rolled up. Huckleberry came and went at his own free will. He slept on doorsteps in fine weather and in empty hogsheads in wet. He did not have to go to school or to church or call any being master or obey anybody. He could go fishing or swimming when and where he chose and stay out as long as it suited him. Nobody forbade him to fight. He could sit up as late as he pleased. He was always the first boy that went barefoot in the spring and the last to resume leather in the fall. He never had to wash nor put on clean clothes. He could swear wonderfully. In a word, everything that goes to make life precious that boy had. So thought every harassed, hampered, and respectable boy in St. Petersburg. Tom hailed the romantic outcast. Hello, Huckleberry. Hello yourself, and see how you like it. What's that you got? Dead cat? Let me see him, Huck. My, he's pretty stiff. Where'd you get him? Bought him off on a boy. What'd you give? I give a blue ticket and a bladder that I got at the slaughterhouse. Where'd you get the blue ticket? Bought it off in Ben Rogers two weeks ago for a hoop stick. Say, what is dead cats good for, Huck? Good for? Cure warts with. No. Is that so? I know something that's better. I bet you don't. What is it? Why, spunk water. Spunk water? I wouldn't give a dern for spunk water. You wouldn't, wouldn't you? Did you ever try it? No, I ain't. But Bob Tanner did. Who told you so? Why, he told Jeff Thatcher, and Jeff told Johnny Baker, and Johnny told Jim Hollis, and Jim told Ben Rogers, and Ben told another kid, and he told me. There now. Well, what of it? They'll all lie. Shucks. Now you tell me how Bob Tanner done it, Huck. Why, he took and dipped his hand in a rotten stump where the rainwater was. In the daytime? Certainly. With his face to the stump? Yes, at least I reckon so. Did he say anything? I don't reckon he did, I don't know. Aha! Talk about trying to cure warts with spunk water such a blame fool way as that. Why, that ain't a going to do any good. You gotta go all by yourself to the middle of the woods where you know there's a spunk water stump, and just as it's midnight, you back up against the stump and jam your hand in and say, Barley corn, barley corn, engine meal shorts, spunk water, spunk water, swallow these warts and then walk away quick eleven steps with your eyes shut, and then turn around three times and walk home without speaking to anybody, because if you speak, the charm's busted. Well, that sounds like a good way, but that ain't the way Bob Tanner done. No, sir, you can bet he didn't, because he's the wartiest boy in this town, and he wouldn't have a wart on him if he'd knowed how to work the spunk water. I've took off thousands of warts my hands that way. I play with frogs so much I've always got considerable many warts. Sometimes I take them off with a bean. Yes, bean's good. I've done that. Have you? What's your way? You take and split the bean and cut the wart so as to get some blood, and then you put the blood on one piece of the bean and take and dig a hole and bury it about midnight at the crossroads in the dark of the moon, and then you burn up the rest of the bean. You see, that piece that's got the blood on it will keep drawing and drawing, trying to fetch the other piece to it, and so that helps the blood to draw the wart, and pretty soon off she comes. Yes, that's it, Huck, that's it. Though when you're burying it, if you say, down bean, off wart, come no more to bother me, it's better. 
That's the way Joe Harper does, and he's been nearly to Coonville and most everywheres. But say, how do you cure them with dead cats? Why, you take your cat and go and get in the graveyard long about midnight when somebody that was wicked has been buried. And when it's midnight, a devil will come, and maybe two or three, but you can't see them. You can only hear them, something like the wind, or maybe hear them talk. And when they're talking that feller away, you heave your cat after him and say, Devil follow corpse, cat follow devil, warts follow cat, I'm done with you. That'll fetch any wart. Sounds right. Did you ever try it, Huck? No, but old Mother Hopkins told me. Well, I reckon it's so then, because they say she's a witch. Say, why, Tom, I know she is. She witched Pap. Pap says so his own self. He come along one day, and he see she was a witch in him, so he took up a rock, and if she hadn't a dodged, he'd a got her. Well, that very night he rolled off in a shed where he was laying drunk and broke his arm. Why, that's awful. How did he know she was a witch in him? Lord Pap can tell easy. Pap says when they keep looking at you right steady, they're a witch in you, especially if they mumble, because when they mumble, they're saying the Lord's Prayer backwards. Say, Hucky, when you gonna try the cat? Tonight? I reckon they'll come after old Hoss Williams tonight. But they buried him Saturday. Didn't they get him Saturday night? Why, well, how you talk? How could their charms work till midnight, and then it's Sunday? Devils don't slosh around much on a Sunday, I don't reckon. I never thought of that. That's so. Let me go with you? Of course, if you ain't afeard. Afeard? Tain't likely. Will you meow? Yes, and you meow back if you get a chance. Last time you kept me a meowing around till old Hayes went to throwing rocks at me and says, Durn that cat. And so I hove a brick through his window. But don't you tell. I won't. I couldn't meow that night because Auntie was watching me. But I'll meow this time. Say, what's that? Nothing but a tick. Where'd you get him? Out in the woods. What do you take for him? I don't know. I don't want to sell him. All right. It's a mighty small tick anyway. Oh, anybody can run a tick down that don't belong to them. I'm satisfied with it. It's a good enough tick for me. So, there's ticks aplenty. I could have a thousand of them if I wanted to. Well, why don't you? Because you know mighty well you can't. This is a pretty early tick, I reckon. It's the first one I've seen this year. Say, Huck, I'll give you my tooth for him. Let's see it. Tom got out a bit of paper and carefully unrolled it. Huckleberry viewed it wistfully. The temptation was very strong. At last he said, Is it genuine? Tom lifted his lip and showed the vacancy. Well, all right, said Huckleberry. It's a trade. Tom enclosed the tick in the percussion cap box that had lately been the pinchbug's prison, and the boys separated, each feeling wealthier than before. When Tom reached the little isolated frame schoolhouse, he strode in briskly, with the manner of one who had come with all honest speed. He hung his hat on a peg and flung himself into his seat with a business-like alacrity. The master, throned on high in his great splint bottom armchair, was dozing, lulled by the drowsy hum of study. The interruption roused him. Thomas Sawyer. Tom knew that when his name was pronounced in full, it meant trouble. Sir, come up here. Now, sir, why are you late again as usual? 
Tom was about to take refuge in a lie, but when he saw two long tails of yellow hair hanging down a back that he recognized only by the electric symphony of love, and by that form was the only vacant place on the girl's side of the schoolhouse, he instantly said, I stopped to talk with Huckleberry Finn. The master's pulse stood still, and he stared helplessly. The buzz of study ceased. The pupils wondered if this foolhardy boy had lost his mind. The master said, You, you did what? Stop to talk with Huckleberry Finn. There was no mistaking his words. Thomas Sawyer, this is the most astounding confession I've ever listened to. No more will answer for this offense. Take off your jacket. The master's arm performed until it was tired and the stock of switches notably diminished. Then the order followed. Now, sir, go and sit with the girls and let this be a warning to you. The titter that rippled around the room appeared to abash the boy, but in reality that result was caused rather more by his worshipful awe of his unknown idol and the dread pleasure that lay in his high good fortune. He sat down upon the end of the pine bench, and the girl hitched herself away from him with a toss of her head. Nudges and winks and whispers traversed the room, but Tom sat still with his arms upon the long, low desk before him, and seemed to study his book. By and by attention ceased from him, and the accustomed school murmur rose dull upon the air once more. Presently the boy began to steal furtive glances at the girl. She observed it, made a mouth at him, and gave him the back of her head for the space of a minute. When she cautiously faced around again, a peach lay before her. She thrust it away. Tom gently put it back. She thrust it away again, but with less animosity. Tom patiently returned it to its place. Then she let it remain. Tom scrawled on his slate, Please take it, I got more. The girl glanced at the words, but made no sign. Now the boy began to draw something on the slate, hiding his work with his left hand. For a time the girl refused to notice, but her human curiosity presently began to manifest itself by hardly perceptible signs. The boy worked on, apparently unconscious. The girl made a sort of non-committal attempt to see, but the boy did not betray that he was aware of it. At last she gave in and hesitatingly whispered, Let me see it. Tom partly uncovered a dismal caricature of a house, with two gable ends to it and a corkscrew of smoke issuing from the chimney. Then the girl's interest began to fasten itself upon the work, and she forgot everything else. When it was finished, she gazed a moment, then whispered, It's nice. Make a man. The artist erected a man in the front yard, that resembled a derrick. He could have stepped over the house, but the girl was not hypercritical. She was satisfied with the monster, and whispered, It's a beautiful man. Now make me coming along. Tom drew an hourglass with a full moon and straw limbs to it, and armed the spreading fingers with a portentous fan. The girl said, It's ever so nice. I wish I could draw. It's easy, whispered Tom. I'll learn you. Oh, will you? When? At noon. Do you go home to dinner? I'll stay if you will. Good. That's a whack. What's your name? 
Becky Thatcher, what's yours? Oh, I know, it's Thomas Sawyer. That's the name they lick me by. I'm Tom when I'm good. You call me Tom, will you? Yes. Now Tom began to scrawl something on the slate, hiding the words from the girl, but she was not backward this time. She begged to see. Tom said, Oh, it ain't anything. Yes, it is. No, it ain't. You don't want to see. Yes, I do. Indeed, I do. Please let me. You'll tell. No, I won't. Deed and deed and double deed won't. You won't tell anybody at all, ever, as long as you live? No, I won't ever tell anybody. Now let me. Oh, you don't want to see. Now that you treat me so, I will see. And she put her small hand upon his, and a little scuffle ensued, Tom pretending to resist in earnest, but letting his hand slip by degrees, till these words were revealed. I love you. Oh, you bad thing. And she hit his hand a smart rap, but reddened and looked pleased, nevertheless. Just at this juncture, the boy felt a slow, fateful grip closing on his ear, and a steady, lifting impulse. In that wise, he was borne across the house and deposited in his own seat, under a peppering fire of giggles from the whole school. Then the master stood over him during a few awful moments, and finally moved away to his throne without saying a word. But although Tom's ear tingled, his heart was jubilant. As the school quieted down, Tom made an honest effort to study, but the turmoil within him was too great. In turn, he took his place in the reading class and made a botch of it, then in the geography class and turned lakes into mountains, mountains into rivers, and rivers into continents, till chaos was come again. Then in the spelling class, and got turned down by a succession of mere baby words, till he brought up at the foot and yielded up the pewter medal which he had worn with ostentation for months. Thank you so much for joining me for another relaxing literature podcast. If you are enjoying this podcast, please consider supporting to help me improve the quality. You can find me at patreon.com forward slash relaxing literature, along with a list of the many benefits you'll receive for being a patron at only $5 a month. You can also support me by rating, subscribing, and reviewing at your podcast platform of choice. Please also find me on Instagram at Relaxing Literature or on Twitter at Relaxing Lit A-S-M-R to leave your comments, questions, or suggestions on what you'd like me to read next. Thank you so much for listening. Good night.